quite a lot to get through, and we, we will end uh, pretty much on time if you want lunch. Um, so, well, or even, and, and or a keynote, I see. Um, so welcome to the, the competition panel. We have, uh, we're very fortunate to have a, a very um, a stellar cast for you. Um, and and this, this uh, panel has been constructed due to the existential um, discussions that we have at the moment in, in, in the competition field, partly about the link between competition policy and industrial policy, so a nice uh, link to the, the previous panel, but also the role that competition plays in, in the digital world. Um, and so I will very briefly introduce the, the panel and then, then we will uh, get cracking because you don't really want to hear from, from me. Um, on the, my far right, um, from the German Ministry of, of uh, Industry, we have Torsten Kessberg, who is the head of unit for competition and consumer policy. And he will uh, talk a little bit about some of the reflections that you may have seen published by the um, uh, Secretary of State Altmaier um, on the role of competition policy in supporting industrial policy. Uh, or, or is it industrial policy supporting competition policy? I'm not too sure. Hopefully we'll have some clarity. Um, and also some of the discussions with, with some of the member states. Um, then to my immediate right, we have uh, Dr. Philip Marston, um, who has a number of hats, but the hat he, he's wearing today is as member of the Furman panel, which is a di digital competition expert panel um, that recently released a report on um, this very topic uh, for the, the British uh, government. Um, and he will explain some of the, the uh, conclusions that he has come to. Uh, also, I should say the panel has come to. Um, on my immediate left, uh, needing no, no introduction, so I shall immediately introduce him, is Thomas Cramler from DGComp, um, who uh, most of you will, will know, but he was uh, responsible for the uh, Digital Single Market Task Force, and he will talk a little bit about some of the thinking uh, uh, within DGComp, although I think speaking in a personal capacity. So, um, But as you know, DG Competition is also uh, waiting for a report from uh, an expert panel um, from Commissioner Vestager uh, on this particular topic. <laughs> Then, um, thereafter, we will have a view from, from industry, um, from uh, Tunis Brossen, who is senior economist at ING, who will talk a little bit about how, um, let's, let's say, a slightly more traditional industry is, is feeling the effect of digitalization and competition uh, in, in that sense. And then, on my far left, we will hear from uh, Tim Lamb, who's associate general counsel at Facebook, who will talk a little bit about some of the debate um, in relation to merger review and digital, do we need new rules? Do we need a new approach? Um, and some of the, the discussions around that. So without further ado, um, I'll pass on to Torsten and uh, we'll get cracking. Thank you. Many thanks. And first of all, I should say that uh, I am the substitute for uh, my boss, Dr. Rafael Lust, who can't be here uh, today because he's heavily involved in uh, German activities to phase out uh, coal um, mining and the use of coal. Um, uh, which has to be put to the German cabinet, um, uh, um, a package of, of measures um, uh, that's even more urgent than uh, industrial and uh, competition policy. Uh, we're going to talk, I think, about sustainability uh, this, this afternoon. Uh, but I hope you understand uh, that, that he can't uh, be here and maybe if uh, the transformation uh, in that regard, uh, in the regions in Germany uh, can be managed well, that uh, might also help um, to deal and prevent some of the, let's say, uh, Trump uh, economic uh, anxieties and nationalism that has sort of impacted on the industrial policy and competition agenda as well. 
Um, Matthew, I think in uh, the prep call uh, said that we should uh, try to uh, focus on killer and thought-provoking points, so uh, I'll try to uh, not to present uh, the dull work stream of a German civil servant, but to uh, address those uh, issues uh, that are really uh, discussed uh, politically, uh, not only in Berlin, but also in, in Paris, in Brussels. Um, uh, this conference actually looks at the challenges um, for, for Europe, this panel for competition policy. And um, if you, I think, um, uh, put together or uh, actually cut down uh, through the buzzwords, uh, I would say it's three big challenges. Uh, one is to have a stronger and swifter uh, framework and enforcement, uh, in particular on digital markets, um, uh, in particular on platforms and data. Uh, the second one is um, to improve competitiveness uh, for uh, EU firms uh, beyond the competition policy agenda. Uh, and the third one would be uh, everything that has to do with uh, China reciprocity, uh, level playing field. Um, uh, and um, if you take those uh, three together, I think to some extent, um, they are a bit into in, in tension, uh, but politics always has the goal to, to balance um, uh, different uh, political goals. Um, we have quite quite uh, uh, a neat agenda and um, uh, um, big challenges um, for a competition policy. Um, I was always puzzled when uh, over the last couple of years there were a couple of or many letters actually by big German companies. Um, they usually uh, had was two paragraphs. The first was saying you need to do something about the GAFAs um, uh, and um, uh, you need to uh, um, enforce more strongly, you, can, you need to come up with uh, additional competition rules, you need to come up with regulation. And then the second paragraph was something uh, usually like, oh, by the way, um, we uh, uh, are about to engage in a transaction in some sort of cooperation. We would need um, uh, uh, permission from the competition authorities. We need more leeway to cooperate, uh, to uh, actually um, uh, confront those challenges um, uh, raised by uh, the GAFAs. Um, now, obviously, that's to some extent in uh, some tension. Um, I'm not sure whether uh, we'll be able to completely um, uh, solve that tension. On competition policy, I think on, on the, on the uh, first issue of um, challenges through uh, uh, digitalization, I think the German position uh, in a nutshell uh, has been we need, first we need um, a stronger and swifter uh, competition enforcement. And secondly, that this has to be done, if possible, uh, on the European level. Um, so I think we, were, we are happy uh, without now um, uh, uh, giving comments on the decisions themselves with the th uh, string of the three Google decisions. Uh, we are um, happy with um, investigations um, by, uh, by the commissioner also into, the, the, into Amazon. We were probably not so happy with uh, merger policy on that front if you, uh, if you look at uh, Facebook uh, and WhatsApp. Um, 
And if you look to, uh, into uh, the national agenda uh, right now, we are um, about to uh, reform a German competition law. Uh, and um, uh, we are trying to uh, close a bit the gap that we perceive between uh, what we have um, under the abuse of dominance provisions in Article 102 uh, and the existing uh, German um, abuse of dominance provisions, uh, basically we have uh, a couple of uh, things on the table. Um, one is to introduce the concept of uh, intermediation power uh, into uh, our competition law. The second would be to widen the scope um, of the provision on relative uh, dominance uh, that we have. Um, France has it, Belgium I think is introducing and widening it. Um, uh, the third uh, would be to have uh, maybe um, uh, a provision against anti-competitive um, denial of network effects, something akin to a, an anti-tipping provision. Uh, and then on data, we are thinking about having a provision on um, refusal to data. Uh, we uh, think about having a provision on um, the bilateral, if, if companies are in a bilateral, bilateral uh, relationship, uh, both doing value creation through uh, data to sort of uh, address a power uh, imbalance. And we actually uh, think uh, about um, modernizing our essential facilities uh, doctrine on that. And we are thinking about a provision on anti-competitive pooling uh, of data. Let's see where the three advisors of uh, the commissioner um, will come up uh, with in their uh, expert uh, report. Um, we are having a similar exercise um, uh, in, in Germany. We have set up a, um, a panel called Competition 4.0 that will come up with proposals. We are going to hear about the Furman uh, proposals um, in a couple of minutes. Um, looking at, at those proposals will be um, uh, very interesting, but that's now my, my personal take. My, my, my belief is that we will still have some gap left, regulatory gap left between uh, what we can do under uh, antitrust and competition abuse of dominance provisions and the uh, P2B regulation uh, that, that will uh, come into force. Uh, so that's maybe um, uh, a question or a topic that, that we can address later on uh, in, in, in the discussion. Um, now coming to the, the second and third uh, challenges, if you um, look into uh, industrial policy, if you uh, look um, into uh, uh, the China problem. Um, I think um, uh, some of you um, have, have maybe even read um, the in, uh, German industrial strategy that has been proposed by uh, uh, Minister uh, Altmaier and um, the um, uh, uh, German Franco uh, Manifesto on industrial um, strategy that he has uh, proposed uh, with um, his colleague uh, Bruno Le Maire. If you look at the text, first of all, you have to see that it's, it's options. Um, my uh, minister uh, uses to say, let's have a debate, uh, let's, let's talk, uh, and let's um, not put um, options uh, off the table uh, from the beginning. A second thing I should say is that um, uh, some of the language uh, has uh, definitely um, uh, has to do with uh, Siemens Alstom and the aftermath uh, of the case. Uh, 
but still we are now in, in the phase that we um, have to um, set out more concrete proposals to fill this agenda. And um, just yesterday, um, we or I sent, sent proposals to, to our French uh, counterparts to look into what, what, what we can do. And um, I think um, the big question behind that is, uh, can and should competition policy be a lever uh, to get the level, level playing field uh, with uh, China? Um, And looking at what the European Commission has uh, proposed to the European Council, the strategic outlook uh, with regard to China, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, most of us would agree that competition policy, because it's not asymmetrical, it doesn't discriminate, uh, it shouldn't discriminate, um, actually is not the, the first best tool, so you have to widen the agenda, but still, Uh, we want to look into the competition provisions to see whether there are um, levers that could um, help us to get this level playing field. And one idea would be to have a, a closer look into uh, state control uh, within merger control to look uh, uh, more deeply into state aid and subsidies. Another idea is to look at um, the relevant market um, principles. I think the um, notice on the relevant market is from 1997, um, so um, it could be updated anyway for other reasons as well. There is also the idea of strengthening um, the cooperation of EU firms outside uh, the internal market. Um, so to have uh, more joint ventures and cooperation to uh, on, on the global markets. Question whether the firms really want to have that um, instead of a full merger. Um, so that, that's the, the current ideas that we will try to bring uh, in, in, uh, into the debate. Now I'm not so sure whether uh, this uh, qualifies as the kill, killer, killer points that Matthew uh, wanted us to uh, uh, bring up here. Um, uh, but um, uh, I think um, from... Uh, uh, I, I would be also, uh, of course, open. I managed actually to uh, avoid to address directly the point of uh, the veto of the uh, of the council or uh, um, uh, other proposals like more political uh, criteria in merger control. Um, or um, uh, we have in Germany the system of a ministerial exemption uh, for mergers that have been uh, prohibited uh, based on um, uh, overall economic and public policy reasons. Uh, but I'm uh, maybe not happy, but open to take questions on that later on. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think given, given time pressure, we'll, we'll just get, uh, get cracking. I won't ask any, any questions and just turn over to, to Philip. And we'll take uh, questions at the end. Thank you, Matthew. It's always a great pleasure to be at this fine institute because I really like the subheading. You know, it's there. We're staring at it all the time. Improving economic policy. Um, I live on an island which is across the channel, which seems destined to do exactly the opposite of that. Um, and so it's a great relief to be here and, and hopefully talk about some important issues. I mean, you, you, you may not be surprised to find out that I would say something along the lines of um, clearly the best civil servants 
in the UK are not working on Brexit. Um, I apologise for that. Um, they were working with us uh, at the Furman Report in the, in the cellars of the Treasury. Um, so I'm very grateful for the Secretariat and the staff who, who supported us in this report. So, so what were some of our findings in our report that came out last week called Unlocking Digital Competition? So, so one, one narrative uh, that we were told and that we've heard a little bit earlier today is that the sky is falling, this chicken little story. Competition authorities have allowed too many mergers. Digital markets are tipping. Uh, even with the consumer benefits that we all realize in terms of increased choice and low prices, nevertheless there are arguments about harms to suppliers, in particular on these platforms, and therefore there might be indirect harms to consumers through potential loss of control, reduced choice, and loss of privacy. And so this kind of story tends to uh, lead uh, a lot of people in what I'll call the leave campaign um, to say let's leave the currently permissive approach, uh, leave the consumer welfare standard, let's take back control, um, uh, let's make, let's MAGA, make antitrust great again. Um, this, is, this is populist led, this has a disdain for experts, in this view the experts in the economic analysis get in the way, we all know what should be done, let's just do it. Let's break up these companies, let's impose price caps, let's, let's reverse mergers, let's in, in, impose market share caps, etc., etc. And these kinds of people argue for substantive changes to antitrust analysis, reversing the burden of proof on mergers, as I say. They focus on what they seem to think are structural harms and therefore have structural remedies. And, they, and some of them reach into some of the jurisdictions we've just heard about and say, well, let's think about theories of harm relating to economic dependency, um, those sorts of things, even if there are consumer welfare benefits from some of these large platforms, nevertheless there are harms that we're not capturing. And I think we can all agree that there, there is some of that as well. Um, and so you're seeing various uh, countries, Germany, Austria, Belgium, France, Japan, South Africa, moving into this direction of building an economic dependency standard to supplement a consumer welfare analysis. Right? And, but in particular, uh, and I tend to focus on remedies, you know, what are we going to do? Um, you know, structural remedies, breakups, price caps, market share caps. You know, so query does that. Um, go with the subheading um, of this fine institute. Now, and there is some authority for some of this at the European level, of course, and indeed some jurisdictions, including my own, have structural breakup powers. So it's not, it's not that unusual. Now, another narrative, you might not be surprised for me to say, is, is more the remain camp. And this is expert-led. And this notes the benefits of digital developments for consumers and for small benefits. It tends to have two voices with one message. And the message is, there's no need to change. There's nothing to look at here. Move along. You know, look at something else, all right? And the first voice is from the large tech firms and their advisors, and they tend to say, nothing to look at here, competition is a click away, you should be grateful, move along, all right? And there's also a same voice that comes from some of the authorities, especially the expert-led evidence-based authorities, and I, I used to belong at one of those. Um, it says, nothing to look at here, nothing to change, we don't need to change our work at all, we don't need to change you know, the consumer welfare standard or anything, merger control and antitrust law is fit for purpose, let's just maintain our evidence-led inquiries, maybe we should be a bit braver, you know, and maybe we should be a bit better at looking at potential competition and harms to dynamic competition. And we're very good at looking at static markets and price effects. Maybe we need to, just need to be, get a little bit better at looking at dynamic changes and non-price effects. And that, you know, that's the other story. Okay. And that, that camp tends to say, well, let's do some tweaks. And we looked at some of these in the Furman report. Some of them are bigger than tweaks. Some of them say things like, well, in these sorts of markets, maybe we should be looking at, in merger control, a balance of harms assessment rather than an SLC test, where you look at not only just the likelihood of harm, but also the magnitude of possible harm 
harm, and therefore that might lead to more intervention. But it's a more economically rational test, and query, of course, and I may get a lot of pushback, I usually do from a lot of lawyers, how workable is that at all? How can you bureaucrats in ivory towers predict the future, et cetera, et cetera? But this is, this is part of the, 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 the proposals we're putting on the table. Um, uh, another, another suggestion that's been made, essentially, is to speed up, as, as Thorson says, the enforcement process, so quicker interim measures. Some jurisdictions are fantastic in this regard. Other jurisdictions are, are, are far too cautious in this regard. And then there's other suggestions relating to the appeal standard and whether we, not, we really need to have a full merits appeal standard for some of the cases that we're working on and whether we could do, do some other standard. But those are all for governments to consult on. Now, in the middle of the political debate of leave and remain with respect to Brexit, Her Majesty the Queen um, stepped in uh, briefly and said, why can't you find some common ground? Come on, be sensible. You know? and, then, and that was reported on for about an hour and then went away. Um, and, but we took that quite to heart um, in, the, in the Treasury. And we thought, well, OK, our Furman report will try to question both narratives, leave and remain, and try to find some way forward, some sort of pragmatic approach. I appreciate there's all sorts of other approaches out there. The Australians have have an excellent report. The FTC will be reporting. The European Trio will be reporting. Many other jurisdictions will. Ours is just one, but in a typical uh, British civil servant manner, uh, uh, apart from Brexit, we, we try to be pragmatic and principled, etc., like that, um, and to begin the debate. Um, uh, so, so we tend to say, look, um, the sky isn't falling. Actually, we, we, we found there are huge benefits from digital developments and innovations. But equally, um, many of the theories of harm that we're hearing about are just old wine in new bottles, which means that traditional competition law analysis and narratives of leveraging, enveloping, exclusion can handle many of these complaints. The question is, is it just taking too long? You know, seven, eight years is too long in these kinds of markets. And so it isn't true that we should just move along, nothing to look at here. You know, clearly, also, competition is not truly a click away. You know, when you look at human behavior, how inert we are, you know. And clearly, data is not sunshine, not in a world of walled gardens, you know. And so clearly, in many digital areas, competition is usually for the market. And clearly, competition authorities are not able to work fast enough and be forward-looking enough in their analysis to handle some of the situations. So clearly, something must be done, all right? Um, cases are slow. Cases are few, far, far between. Fines are huge. You know, even yesterday wasn't the biggest one, but it's another one. Um, and they're blunt, all right? And there doesn't seem to be any guidance for industry, especially with respect to these sort of co-opetition or cooperation uh, guidance that you need to give uh, other, other entities to be able to compete with the large firms. So what do you do? So we said, Look, why don't we listen to a Nobel laureate called Jean Thirol, who, say, who said participative antitrust is perhaps a way forward. And, and I, since I think of a boring lawyer, I tend to think of um, antitrust as law enforcement. I change it to participative regulation. Oh my gosh, there's a shiver in the room. Another regulator being proposed, but, but bear with me. Can we find common ground? For example, a room, imagine, maybe a bit smaller than this, where we have experts like you, your clients, the big firms, the small firms, the complainants, etc., and government to build a principled basis for ex-ante pro-competitive regulation with respect to these platforms. So when a market's characteristics tend towards one or only a few firms, Clearly, policy interventions like antitrust law enforcement are, you know, are, are required, but you need something more than that. 
markets based upon digital platforms, despite their other differences and despite the differences within platforms, not all platforms are platforms, for example, show a tendency to tip towards a single winner. We've heard that, and I think that's you know, you know, irrefutable. So can a pro-competition ex-ante approach offer any guidance, and how would we do that? We'd build in some sort of competition ex up front. One of the things we could offer to the platforms, for example, is predictability. Do they really want to go around the world of hundreds of countries and play whack-a-mole trying to stop each antitrust investigation or different legislative standards or different codes that are being produced? Probably they'd like to, they can afford to do that, of course, but maybe that's not the best way of, 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 of focusing their time. Um, though I, I'm sure the lawyers in the room would be pleased to help them chase the jurisdictions uh, who are doing follow-on enforcement um, uh, in that way. But, but maybe they'd like to contribute a little bit of their vast resources to engaging us to try to develop a code. And maybe that could help spur innovation and it would help uh, consumers and it would take some heat out of the antitrust enforcement problem and the, some heat out of the litigation. So we've suggested three tools. First, we're setting up, uh, uh, we hope to set up with, after government consultation, um, a digital markets unit that would set up codes of practice for these large firms. Um, and what we're suggesting is that firms with what we call strategic market status, right, strategic market status, essentially control over an essential gateway. Notice I didn't say essential facility. Essential gateway um, would then would be designated by government, but with, an, with agreement you know, with people in the room, that those people are on the list, all right? And therefore, they have an additional special responsibility in addition to antitrust law obligations, all right? So we clearly have a similar aim and motivation to antitrust. We're trying to stop the problems before they start and not have to chase after the problems for years and years and years. And so some of those rules you know, we, we are to be developed, but they would be relating to you know, self-preferencing, to the degree to which you can do that on your platform, the degree to which you might be pushing others off your platform, charges you're having to let people be on your platform, what you're doing with data, various codes that some of the, some of the large players may not agree to at all or may not. That's why we need, we need to have some government involvement in setting these codes. But we definitely don't want it to be just the GAFA and government in the room. We want to hear from the other experts as well. And some other commitments, just to finish off, are interoperability with, between services. We learned a lot in our open banking investigation in the UA, that, uh, in the EU, that the, sorry, in the UK, that the CMA uh, did too many acronyms in this sector, um, where essentially what you need to be able to have is a situation where data can be ported by the consumers, but also that data can be released to fintech intermediaries to foster that competitive environment. So in the open banking investigation, we were asked specifically by politicians to break up the banks, all right? Very direct request and very direct powers we had to break up these banks. And we decided that was not going to be evidence of, a, there wasn't enough evidence to do that, that that would be beneficial and also would be harmful. So instead we opened them up, have them release data into data sandboxes that fintech and intermediaries can play around with and offer you better tools to, uh, to engage with your bank. And what we saw was not only were entrants able to use that data effectively, but also the incumbents who frankly were sitting on old, <coughs> old technology systems and not using the data at all to serve their consumers were forced to engage better. So we saw a slight moving of the needle. You know, so I'll just conclude by saying what's our measure of success? Is it switching that you all rush off from Facebook to something else or whatever? It's not. It's not switching. In our banking inquiry, the measure of success wasn't switching. You know, we have you know, strong evidence that more Britons switch their spouse 
then switch their bank. All right, and so it's unlikely, you know, or at most they might begin multi-banking if, if I can't push the, uh, the analogy too far. You know, so this, so this is a situation where switching is not the answer. What you want is more engagement, more involvement, and a more competitive ecosystem. So it's a beginning of a debate we only launched last Wednesday, and we're really looking forward to this dialogue because I can foresee a room like this where we develop a code, we slap it down, we don't have a five-year market investigation to devise the code. We devise a code, we enforce it. I think personally through an arbitration mechanism and large fines, but you know, that's all to be discussed. Super. Well, th thank you very much. Um, obviously a very reasonable um, and pragmatic approach, as you said, from, uh, from, the, from the UK perspective. Um, neither, not too hot, not too cold. Um, I was wondering whether in your uh, presentation, Thomas, you could uh, think about some, some reactions, whether you thought some of these ideas were, were viable yeah. and uh, how that would play out at the European level. Thanks. Just first of all, I'd like to respond to you, actually. You termed this, you introduced this debate as an existential discussion on antitrust law. If you were to take that as, at face value, antitrust would be an existential, existential crisis for the last uh, 50 years, actually, because this is a, a recurring debate. When the US started regulating in the 50s IBM, many people said antitrust laws should stay away from that. That's a very innovative market. You can just do wrong and harm. Same again when Microsoft was in the focus of the debate here in Europe and in the US. The debate was the very same thing. Uh, can competition law actually deal with fast-moving markets, with network effects? Uh, yes, it can, I would say, and yes, it did. Uh, so this debate is actually a recurring debate. That doesn't mean that we have to be complacent and we should look into what can be improved, but just uh, as a reminder that uh, this debate is not that new, frankly, um, in, in, in the world. The advantage that we have on the EU side, and that has been discussed in the previous panel, is that we have quite some precedents. It's not that we've been idle in, uh, in regulating or in enforcing antitrust rules to, to be more precise in uh, fast-moving markets. If you look at the Google cases, self-preferencing, a new issue that has come up in digital markets dealt with in the Google shopping decision, pre-installation dealt with in the Google Android decision, already dealt with in the Microsoft browser decision at the time, uh, where, we, where we had to deal with pre-installation as an issue, interoperability that Philip mentioned, dealt with in the 2004 Microsoft decision on, on server interoperability, uh, standard essential patterns, a topic uh, that's uh, quite hot uh, in, in, in many areas, dealt with in the 2014 Motorola and Samsung decisions, MFN clauses. That within in the Amazon eBooks uh, 2017 uh, decision, exclusivity rebates, Intel, Qualcomm. So we deal with things uh, as we speak. It's, we have a lot. We have amassed a lot of knowledge from that, and we should uh, we should not be too humble to build on that knowledge and and say, okay, how can we improve? Uh, not everything's perfect that we have done, certainly not. But how can we improve on the basis of what we have already done? If you compare that to other jurisdictions, uh, the knowledge is a bit more sparse, I would say, and uh, therefore they cannot really build on this trove uh, of uh, precedents, which already set a bit the scene for antitrust enforcement in, in the European Union. So let's not uh, say that we have nothing. Uh, we can actually build on standing on the shoulders of giants, as, as one, uh, one eminent scholar has said. Uh, so we have something, but that doesn't mean we have to be complacent. That does also not mean uh, we should either be in the remain or in the leave camp. Uh, I think we should be in the middle, uh, and that's where we are in Europe. Uh, and therefore, this reflection process is currently ongoing, uh, and there are certain issues we certainly need to reflect upon. Speed. Speed is one issue. Are we too slow in addressing uh, antitrust issues, and what can we do about it? Uh, 
You can do uh, things on the procedural side. We have now introduced uh, a new procedure on cooperation, <coughs> where we work together with companies, where we identify the problem, and then try to work together with companies to come to swift solutions, uh, although with a fine, other than the, the, the normal settlement uh, process that has been in place for a couple of years. So we sanction the companies, but we work together with them on, uh, on finding solutions, also on identifying remedies. That has worked out quite well in the, in this, in the area of vertical restraints, and there were a couple of cases last year that we took. Uh, but we also need to see uh, uh, on the evidence side what is the right level of evidence that one needs to produce in these digital cases. And obviously we cannot strive for the perfect evidence because the perfect evidence would mean that we would be investigating forever because it's not achievable to find the perfect evidence in these cases. There's an interesting article by uh, Sir Peter Roth, uh, who works at the Competition uh, Appeals Tribunal in the UK, and he said something uh, very uh, clear and very uh, straightforward. He said, competition law must not become so demanding or so uncertain as to prevent its practical application. And I think very much sign up to that. Uh, we need to be practical. We cannot demand. The thresholds cannot be so high that it becomes impossible uh, to prove your cases. Uh, so you need to be uh, measured. And we need to bring the courts along because the courts are obviously very important in this process. If the courts don't buy into uh, the evidence that uh, we present to them and help us to define what the limits are of what we need to prove and where we can stop and uh, what kind of proxies we can use, uh, then uh, this will not uh, succeed, this will fail. Which brings me to another debate on the use of proxies. How can we actually improve our assessment of cases by the use of proxy. In the US, as you know, there's this big debate about consumer harm. What does it actually mean that consumers are harmed and how much consumer harm do you have to show? Is this only focusing on price harm or do we have to go into other harms, innovation harm, harm to choice? Uh, in the EU, we're in a bit more comfortable position, uh, at, at least when it comes to uh, what the courts have been ruling on in the past. They've always allowed us to use proxies like harm to the competitive process, which then later on translates into uh, consumer harm. Uh, and the courts have been very favorable to this concept. But obviously, there can't be any competition without competitors. So the notion of uh, the EU protects competitors and uh, the US protects, uh, protects uh, genuine competition, I don't uh, really think that is true. We've always been um, very much grounded in uh, Yes, harm to the competitive process that later on translates uh, into, into consumer harm. And with these kind of proxies, I think uh, we are on the right track. And the debate in the US, uh, and if you read books, uh, for instance, from, from Tim Wu, from uh, uh, a very interesting book, he also says uh, the, the EU system is actually has an advantage in, in, in that focus is not only on the short-term consumer price harm, but also goes into more long-term long -term harm. So that's another thing that one needs to reflect upon. Obviously, a new theory of, of harm will come up, and we need to be open to address those, but we are, we have done this. Uh, the self-preferencing is an example I've given in the Google case. It hasn't happened uh, before. We haven't seen it in that uh, uh, emanation before. The most favored nation clauses, something new which has come up in online markets, uh, the standard essential patents, the non-price factors in many of our cases, also in, in merger cases uh, where we have to deal uh, nowadays with a lot of non-price uh, arguments and non-price effects, uh, which we can take into account, uh, doesn't really hinder us uh, in, in moving forward on these cases. Then another reflection, uh, and that uh, ties in with what Philip just said, uh, how can we, apart from uh, enforcement, give guidance? So we need to reflect uh, whether our guidance to companies, and that 
also ties in with the Jean Tirole idea of uh, participative antitrust and sandbox. Sandbox antitrust, I think that's what he called it. So how can, how can companies uh, be more certain of what they can do and what they cannot do? Uh, we have tools. Um, we have obviously our guidelines, and they come up. Uh, there will be revisions of the horizontal guidelines and, uh, and the vertical guidelines very, very soon, and that will also factor in obviously digital uh, market trends. But there's also other tools that, that we have uh, in, in, uh, with which we can give more guidance. Then regulation, and that also ties in, in with what uh, Philip said. Uh, often competition law. Uh, is at the forefront of detecting uh, market problems, market failures. But then, obviously, it's not a panacea. It cannot solve all the problems in the market. So often, competition has been kind of the trailblazer for regulatory uh, developments later on. If you think about roaming, I don't know how many of you know that roaming actually, the roaming regulation started with competition law intervention in the first place. Uh, the interchange fee regulation was basically a follow-up to competition cases. There was a systemic market problem identified, which was then translated into regulation. I think that makes a lot of sense. You first try out things in, in a case-to-case -case assessment on competition law basis, but if it really turns out to be systemic, then regulation is probably the better way to deal with things. And then competition law, and I use the terms that Philip likes so much, is basically the backstop, I think. <laughs> the backstop uh, that kicks in uh, when, when nothing else is, uh, is available. So one uh, still keeps that um, uh, in, in, in reserve. So. Having said all of this, the, the reflection process uh, on, on the Commission side is ongoing. We have this uh, advisors panel that uh, the Commissioner has set up uh, with uh, three very different uh, individuals with very different experiences, with Heike Schweitzer being a German uh, lawyer, Jacques Crema, a French economist, and Yves-Alexandre uh, Montjoie, who is uh, a Belgium uh, technologist, if you want. Uh, so they, they will combine together a wealth of uh, knowledge and the wealth of information, they will look into three <coughs> particular issues, platforms and how to deal uh, with platforms, data, and uh, mergers and innovation. These topics are the ones, I think, that uh, are uh, at the forefront of the discussion uh, here. And we will have to think uh, collectively after that uh, around uh, the topics that I described, speed, theories of harm, guidance, interplay with regulation. To conclude, I think, uh, it's not the radical changes um, that we should uh, focus on. It's more an incremental step-by-step -step improvement uh, that we need. The general legal <laughs> framework, I would say, is very much apt to deal uh, with the challenges of the digital, um, digital environment, of digital markets. But obviously, uh, there's no time for complacency. We need to look into what we can improve, and the, the advisors panel will be very helpful in, in, in that regard. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I've been particularly impressed by timekeeping, I have to say, so thank you very much. Um, but substance as well, um, to, to say the least. And, and, and one thing that's coming out fairly uh, strongly is, is a need to revise this notion of, of uh, uh, well, I'll use the word, but, but it's more the notion of essential facilities. And we've seen uh, Torsten saying that, that this is being uh, uh, reconsidered. Uh, the Furman report was considering a, a new status, which is a sort of half we we'll have to wait and see how it fleshes out, but sort of halfway house on uh, uh, strategic market status uh, and um, 
you cited some of the essential facilities cases as well, so um, it'll be fairly interesting, interesting to see. However, before we do that, um, Tunis is going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, 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 the practical aspect of, of dealing with these, with these issues, and I don't know if anything you've heard has given you comfort. Maybe you want to reserve that to, to Q&A. Maybe it's chilled your blood. I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, thanks, Matthew. Uh, well, I would like to give you a bit of a, a practitioner's view of uh, a bank being on the receiving end of digitization and um, uh, the advent of, uh, of technology. Um, and I should also say um, I will discuss not so much competition policy itself, uh, but, but basically the stages before that, before antitrust uh, uh, kicks in. Uh, and we are more concerned about how to maintain a level playing field between uh, us uh, being, for example, the banks, the incumbents versus uh, uh, fintech and big tech um, firms. Uh, I would like to briefly discuss where we are in, uh, in the banking world, uh, then the tension between innovation on the one hand and financial regulation on the other hand, um, the link between digitization and financial stability and financial integrity, and last, uh, the role of data, which has already been touched upon uh, previously. Um, well. The current situation, basically what we see in banking, which is what we see in many places right now, is the battle for the primary customer relationship. Basically everybody, every bank, but also every tech company wants to uh, be in the face of the customer, wants to have the, the interaction with the customer. Because if you are in that position, then you are in a position to build a profile of the customer, you are in the best position to generate data, make customized offers. And also, other firms in the value chain have to come to you uh, in order to interact with the customer. So it's really the battle for this primary customer relationship, I think, that is shaping uh, banking and a lot of other uh, sectors. Um, how is that taking shape? Well, first, I think already for a number of years, we have seen uh, fintechs coming into banking. And fintech companies tend to be the small startups that are very good at very specific issues. They, they take the value chain of banking or financial services, they pick out a specific issue there uh, that they think can, uh, they can do better. They indeed focus on that, do that a lot better. Um, uh, and uh, some of them are doing very well uh, uh, in that. However, the problem for fintechs is that uh, they have good ideas. However, uh, uh, most of the time they lack funding, they lack a big client base, they lack brand awareness with uh, 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 the audience, uh, which makes these fintechs not so much a competitor to banks, but more of a natural partners, because banks do have the client base and the funds, so it's natural for fintechs and banks to partner. And this is what you see over the past years, that many partnerships between fintechs and banks have um, arisen. There is a good match there. However, from our perspective as a bank, big tech is different because big tech has everything that the fintech has, the good idea, uh, etc. But they also have the funds to invest, the resources. They already have the platforms and the clients and the brand awareness. Uh, so those are indeed the uh, competitors, the potential competitors uh, to banks. Although I should add the open question until today remains, do people actually trust big techs with their money? And that is really a big open question that is yet to be answered. There is one thing, interestingly, that big techs don't have yet, which banks do have, which is a banking license. Now, up to now, big techs have shied away from applying for an actual banking license. Now, which, which brings me to the next point, which is the tension between innovation and financial regulation. Um, 
I'm not going to tire you with a full exposition about the licensing system within banking. Suffice it to say, let's zoom in on the payments area because that is where most of the competition is taking place with the technology at this time. And there are basically, there is a hierarchy of three different uh, licenses. Uh, you can begin as a fintech uh, applying for a payment institution license that gives you to, uh, the ability to offer a, a limited set of services, but in return you also have a limited regulatory burden. If you then want to expand as a fintech, you can apply for an electronic money license, which gives you more uh, uh, scope to offer services, but it comes with uh, a slightly bigger regulatory burden. Um, and then, if you expand further, you can apply for a banking license, but even within the banking license, we see that there are stages. And what we see is that the number of fintechs, for example, apply for parts of the banking license. And they say, well, we want to offer deposits, but we don't yet want to offer lending. And there are ways in the banking license to, to pick a number of items that you want to offer and to uh, uh, not to take the others. That is all very good and well. And, and I think this licensing system in itself works, uh, works well. It allows firms to scale up uh, also in a regulatory terms. Uh, however, banks are always, of course, using this full banking license. And there we run into an issue with innovation. Uh, because suppose we have two fintechs that offer exactly the same service. And one fintech is uh, a standalone. The other fintech is owned by a bank. Now, the standalone fintech has to comply with this pile of paper of, of compliance. It hires one compliance officer and it's good to go. However, the fintech owned by the bank offering exactly the same service has to comply with this pile of paper because it is subject to the banking license and the banking policies and everything applies in full force. So that means that this bank-owned fintech has to hire five compliance officers instead of one. It means that its developments of software code is delayed because it has, has to be reviewed more. Uh, so there is a level playing field issue there. Uh, we, are held, we as banks are held back uh, innovating because of uh, this in, uh, higher regulatory burden that banks have, for a good reason in itself, by the way, of course. So I think it's only natural that we see that big techs don't have acquired a banking license yet. I mean, they, they, they don't like this regulatory burden. And to be honest, why should they acquire a banking license? If they can, can have the primary customer relationship, they can leave the plumbing of, of banking to, well, to the banks and have them uh, have to apply to their platform uh, and have them pay basically for the services provided by the big tech platform. So uh, I, I consider it very likely that uh, in the foreseeable future, well, we have Facebook here, so we can ask uh, that big tech uh, won't apply for a full uh, banking license. But there is a level playing field issue here. How to solve? Well, an easy solution would be let's apply the full regulatory burden imposed on banks to all uh, fintech. Well, I'm not in favor of that either because basically it would effectively kill off innovation. So that's not a good solution. However, what we do see is that banking services, financial services being unbundled, fintechs focusing on specific uh, uh, services, maybe regulation should follow this development and should be, let's say, unbundled as well. Uh, um, and, and this is what is often called as activity-based regulation. Let regulation not so much focus on entities, on banks, insurers, pension funds, but regula regulation, financial regulation more focus on the activity that's actually done by a specific uh, institution, uh, which brings me to the slogan that's well known to people in the financial sector, same activity, same risks, same rules. Uh, 
Maybe then, if I still have time on the topic of financial stability and uh, integrity. Well, we, we learned the hard way in 2008 that, in fact, the risks in the financial system were all over the place and we didn't exactly know where the risks were and that they were carried sometimes by, by institutions that were not able to carry those risks. And I'm talking about financial risks, uh, credit risk, counterparty uh, risk, liquidity risk, but also integrity risks. And I would argue... Uh, um, uh, that with the unbundling of bank, uh, banking, we are moving a bit in this direction. And the reason is that banking regulation itself is harmonized in Europe. We have a banking union, we have a single rule book, we have the ECB in its role, a single supervisory mechanism. So that's all harmonized, that's all at the European level. However, for these fintechs being payment institutions, e-money institutions, and those lighter licenses, uh, those are... Um, uh, applied in, in European directives that are translated into national legislation. And in translation, of course, things can be added, uh, uh, etc. And then we have national supervisors interpreting this national legislation and taking their own interpretation of what they think uh, their role in supervision should be. <coughs> so what you see here then is we have unbundling of financial services. We have these fintechs focusing on what they are really good at, outsourcing the rest. So you get a very complex web of, of banks and financial institutions doing this financial services provision. In turn, you have a very complex web of national supervisors supervising this entire network. We have these, ne these fintechs using passports uh, to, to offer their services throughout Europe. And I wonder uh, if we still can say that we are in control, that we still have a clear view of both financial risks Credit, uh, credit risks, uh, counterparty risks, and also integrity risks in this very complex network. Uh, I think a, a review of this framework is needed and we need to move more to the European level. Now maybe if I may still say something about data in one minute, uh, I'm going to interpret that as you may uh, still deal with one topic. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we talked about open banking. PSD2 is, is the equivalent at the European level. Now, I, I do admit that it took some getting used to for banks, but I think at least at our bank and at several other banks, we really embrace this, and we also get to see the positives of PSD2, which is indeed we not only have to give away our own treasure data, but we can also obtain those data from other banks. However, there is a big asymmetry here, uh, because... The big techs have all the soft data on their customers, their preferences, their behavior from search, from email, from social networks. And with PSD2, they can now also obtain the hard data on payments, for example, that banks have. However, banks have no way to, to do uh, the same uh, in return. And we cannot ask our clients, please, can you uh, request uh, uh, your big tech to hand uh, uh, your data to us? And there is no legal framework there. Um, so we would, would be very much in favor to expand the idea of data sharing that is enshrined in PSD2 and expand it to uh, other sectors. And I think it's very important here to take a cross-sectoral approach because due to digitization and due to technology, uh, this is a cross-sectoral thing that's going on. So let me conclude. I think a number of recommendations from our side would be um, yeah, the tension between innovation and, and the, the fragmented uh, licensing framework that we have in Europe should be addressed. The complexity of financial services 
uh, should be addressed as well. And finally, in data, we are all in favor of more data sharing in a cross-sectoral way. And of course, everything subject to customer consent. Let, let that be clear. Thanks. So, thank you very much. Uh, it's always useful to have a, a sort of business um, uh, overlay on, on some of the, the, the policy discussions, and it, it obviously um, complicates matters somewhat. Um, very, very intriguing. Uh, Tim, you don't need to, to talk about your, your views on financial uh, services regulation. Feel free to discuss uh, merger policy. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you. It's, it's an honor to be um, on this panel and here. Um, I'd propose to uh, talk about um, some of the current debates around merger policy. Um, because there's been some debate in recent years as to whether we need to change the merger control thresholds or whether we need to change um, the substantive tests um, in relation to uh, tech mergers, in, in potentially to address um, whether there's an enforcement gap. And I'd like to take up on, on some of the things that Philip has said as well as I go through, and, and we can discuss that maybe afterwards. Um, and I think that scrutiny is important of mergers. It's there. It's already happening. It's absolutely necessary. Um, you see that digital transactions are notified both at the national level but also at the pan-European level. So, for example, you see that through Apple Shazam, which was notifiable to the Austrian Competition Authority and was um, referred up to the European Commission and then went to phase two. It underwent uh, a pretty close um, scrutiny from the European Commission. You see that also at national level with mergers such as Just Eat Hungry House with the CMA doing a, a pretty a close scrutiny there of that merger as well. I'd also argue that competition authorities um, have a broad analytical framework within which to assess mergers to the extent that new theories can already be introduced within the existing framework and they can be debated. Um, you see that with the innovation, theory, um, innovation competition theory of harm. In addition, I'd also venture that competition authorities have extensive powers in order to understand the rationale behind mergers, so they can ask companies for an extensive array of, of internal documents to uh, understand the rationale um, behind the transaction. And in addition to sort of extensive um, document request powers, there's also the ability to interview the business and to speak to the business to understand the rationale behind a particular transaction. In addition to all of that, you've got um, a wide range of opportunities also for third parties to take part in that merger control process. So uh, you have the opportunity for customers, for suppliers, for competitors, for trade associations to step into the fold and raise any concerns they may have. They can do that through responding to RFIs or general invitations to comment. The question I think there is whether when those concerns are raised, raised they are actually evidence-based. So. I'd actually venture that given the current scrutiny at the moment, it's questionable as to whether we actually see any enforcement gap uh, in relation to tech mergers. But nevertheless, um, I think the perception um, persists that there has been under uh, enforcement in merger control and that that has led to a sharper debate over whether competition authorities have been too lax, have allowed mergers through, have been um, worried about over-enforcement um, at the expense of, of, of under-enforcement. Um, and some are encouraging, I think, authorities to be uh, less cautious 
uh, and to go forward and to take uh, and to enforce a whole lot more. But I think that underestimates the impact of over-enforcement where mistakes, if the mistakes are made, then it's actually quite difficult to rectify those mistakes and it can have lasting damage to the consumer. So for example, I think we have the debate at the moment in the UK around Project Kangaroo and, and the decision around that. That is something that needs to be considered. And so you would hope that um, in a rapidly innovative and sort of uh, evolving um, tech sector, authorities would remain sort of um, focused on maintaining a balance between incorrect enforcement and upholding legal certainty, both of which are crucial to encouraging um, innovation. Now, the necessarily forward-looking um, framework of merge control analysis um, needs to be carefully considered. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should focus only on potential competition or innovation-based theories of harm um, while ignoring the relevant counterfactual in any uh, given uh, transaction. And it's the counterfactual that I want to focus on here. And that's because part of the debate um, seems to be, uh, seems to believe that any acquired business would achieve the standalone success on the, would achieve success on a standalone basis. And the reality in this space and other spaces is that actually many firms fail. And I think Tony's referred to this because there's actually great difficulty in execution. Right? A lot of startups will fail. That's just the way the industry works. It's the way the industry has always worked. And so to assume that a company that is an ex-post hit would have been successful absent a transaction isn't necessarily supported. It's not there. It's not backed up by, by sort of industry practice. And the question is actually often raised um, in relation to um, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, and the question is, would Instagram have become a success without having been acquired by um, Facebook? The question is also asked about YouTube and Google. I mean, YouTube at the time when it was acquired was run by two people in a garage and run on credit card debt. Um, I also think it's interesting to look at the thoughts of Kevin Systrom, who was the CEO um, of Instagram at the time, and he's made these thoughts public. He, he, he said that at the time of the acquisition, Instagram had eight people in the company. Um, it was struggling to keep the site up, and they were struggling to raise money. Um, and at the time, Instagram had 30 million users, and it just didn't know if it would be the next hit. Um, it had no guarantees. It had no plans around monetization. It had no revenues. And so there was considerable uncertainty. And even at the time that uh, we acquired Instagram, I think at the time there were 10 other photo apps, at least 10 other photo apps that were around. Um, and some of those were, were actually bigger than Instagram. So if you looked at Flickr, it had 75 million users. You look at Vidi, it had 30 million users. It's also worth um, pointing to the example of SocialCam, um, which in May 2012, I think over the course of a weekend, acquired 4 million users, and it grew to 36 million users. I don't know where social cam is now, but it just highlights the rate of failure in the industry, and it highlights the sort of ephemeral nature of the industry. That, that's how a lot of these things happen. And so I think when we look back in, in hindsight at some of these acquisitions, it's, it's worthwhile remembering what the conditions were like at the time, what the commercial realities were like at the time, and also remembering where Facebook was in 2012. Um, I think there was a, a Guardian um, article that talked about whether, and really questioned whether um, Facebook had a, had a way to monetize um, its offering. And our share price at that time had fallen to $18. So it was a very different time. And I think you have to look at the commercial realities. 
So I think if you think about murder decisions that turn around sort of potential competition, they, they do run the risk of being particularly speculative. Now, I'm not saying um, that those concerns aren't valid and they, they do need to be explored. It's just that um, as a lawyer and from my, my personal perspective, you'd want there to be um, strong facts and evidence um, to back that up and to back up um, such theories. And that's especially true, again, in the tech sector, where you've got M&A in the tech sector, and it's very difficult to predict the future. This is one of the most fast-changing environments there is. And so to try and predict where things are going is, is, is really hard. And I would say that Instagram at the time didn't know if it was going to be a success, and that, that's really instructive. Um, so when it comes to the counterfactual, and I'm just going back to the counterfactual, think about, um, we need to think about the, the sort of commercial realities on the ground. You, you can't assume that every startup is going to be a big competitor, or even that they want to be a big competitor. I think part of the debate as well um, introduces a... a thinking about whether there are true efficiencies um, behind mergers. Um, and there is a questioning as to the efficiencies behind mergers. But um, there, I think, there's suggestions that you might create a deal climate which, uh, under which, in the proposed transaction, the deal is presumed to be problematic um, unless it can be proven otherwise. And I think that is uh, an area of, of interest. But I think listen to the, what the venture capitalists are saying, listen to what some of the VC firms are saying in reaction to that and the impact it might have on innovation. I think that's really instructive rather than just listening to me. Um, and I think also in relation to um, mergers, I think it's worth thinking about the fact-specific efficiencies. So when firms X and Y merge, let's look at the efficiencies that are generated by that. And we can do that by um, sort of thinking about the know-how that's brought by a larger firm, the expertise that's brought by a larger firm. And I think it's worth thinking about that also in relation to Instagram and think about the benefits that Facebook brought to Instagram at the time. So um, Instagram just didn't have a monetization plan. It had no idea as to how it was going to make money. It didn't know if it was going to make money. It could have been an app that failed as well. And instead, I think Facebook brought um, what is effectively a, a real sort of ads infrastructure in terms of ads delivery um, on the site. We brought our ad expertise to Instagram so that when you uh, see sponsored content on Facebook or Instagram, it flows quite nicely. It doesn't interrupt with, uh, with, your, with your view. Um, we also brought a, a dedicated Salesforce with all the expertise there. And also, um, I get the comment that Instagram looks a lot like Facebook, so how could it have been um, ignored as a, as a competitor? Well, the reason Instagram looks a lot like Facebook is because we bought it. It sounds, it sounds really basic, but actually the functionality available in Instagram at the time in 2012 was, was relatively basic. It was just a question of um, taking a photo on, on your phone and then filtering. Um, we brought all our expertise to that. We brought our anti-spam policies. We brought um, an algorithmic feed. We brought photo tagging. We brought comments thread. We made it a much more interactive social experience. And I think questioning that transaction undermines all the work and investment that has gone into it. And it's really taken Instagram a very long way. And actually, this is a hugely pro-competitive transaction, which I would argue should have been absolutely approved in phase one. But more broadly, and more broadly than just sort of fact-specific efficiencies, I think the questioning of merger efficiencies, the questioning of the value of mergers, is problematic from an innovation perspective. Investments in startups actually carry a high degree of risk. Again, most um, startups fail, and that's because there is a problem with execution. Execution is really hard, and I cannot emphasize that enough. 
the risk of failure is made more palatable by two um, key reasons. Um, the first is that people may be encouraged to launch new ideas, may be encouraged to launch new ventures if they think they can recoup that investment by acquisition by a large company. The second is that the potential for that acquisition, the very potential for that acquisition, also attracts investment by venture capital firms. And I think you can see that in some of the reports that are published. And there's a Wyman report that talks about the investment of Facebook, Google, Amazon in this space, and talks about it as a, as, as a driver for growth, as a driver for innovation. And that's the interviews, that's as a result of interviews with venture capitalists, and it's worth taking that into account. So I believe that... Um, the general merger framework that we already have in place is susceptible to deal with a lot of these questions. I think you can tweak those frameworks. You can tweak it within those frameworks, as Thomas has, has indicated. Um, but I think that if we are going to tweak those frameworks and if we are going to look at potential competition on a much broader set, I think it would be really interesting to have that applied symmetrically across the board, and not necessarily just in merger control, but in antitrust enforcement. Um, I'm happy to take any questions that are, and I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Th thank you very much. I, I think certainly what, what we've heard is that uh, uh, this is a very innovative field, both in terms of regulation, but also in terms of, uh, in terms of industry, which is maybe more important. Um, and obviously, competition policy needs to seek to incentivize, or at least not harm, innovation. Um, and therefore not harm investment uh, investment flows. Um, I, I did want um, to see if the panel had any reactions very briefly, but I also wanted to give the, the floor the opportunity to ask questions. So I don't know if any of you have any quick reactions you want to, uh, to make to each other's presentations, or we can put it to the floor. Any? Happy to, Okay, let, let's see what the floor has to, any, any questions, but pointed questions, please, and maybe we'll take a few first. Very short bureaucratic question, Bogdan Kivitsoyu from Romania Competition Authority. So, Philip, uh, sorry I'm not familiar with the report. If you create a digital unit market, where is it going to be placed? Because if it's, if you place it in CMA, in the Competition Authority, are these people the best prepared to deal with future-oriented uh, guidelines? If you don't place it in CMA, won't there be a contradiction between the guidance they give to the company and the enforcement that CMA comes after that? Very apt question. So the question is about the location of the digital markets unit that we're preparing. And we did think about that very carefully. And as you can see from the report, we ended up leaving it open to government and consultation. Um, uh, whereas other bodies, including Lords, um, said that actually there needed to be a body that was above the CMA and above Ofcom and above the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, and that report came out a week before ours. Um, one of the things I was very clear about, just speaking personally, is we could not base it in an existing organization and rely only on the existing organization's powers. So, for example, if a digital markets unit was put in the CMA, you know, it, even if it was given a wider remit or something, you know, it's within a legal institution that has a certain amount of power. So we think something is, is, is more than that it needs, to be, needs to be done. So our view is of it being some sort of cross-governmental function, all right, very fudgy and messy and everything, but we want it to be a dedicated resource. So what we were saying to the Treasury was we want you to resource this, we want you to create this, we'd like you to get the best people from the CMA and Ofcom, et cetera, into this sort of area and begin the engagement with the tech co's and the complainants and and uh, and, uh, and other stakeholders. Um, and then the enforcement mechanism would have to be independent as well of these existing authorities. The example we would give is something that's existing in the UK already called the Groceries Code Adjudicators. The example we did 
did there is there was a massive investigation of another platform <coughs> industry called the retail platform industry, the on offline uh, platform industry of groceries. And there it was decided that despite the great consumer welfare benefits of effective <coughs> competition in the grocery sector, nevertheless, there were buyer dependency issues and power imbalances up and down the stream. Um, essentially, you know, are you going to run out of milk producers? You know, like that, and, and because the prices of milk are becoming so cheap, that sort of thing, that kind of squeezing. And different authorities and different governments have put different approaches with respect to this. The French are, are leading in this in this regard in particular. But um, what one thing we noticed is if we created a, an adjudicator, an independent panel that looked at that power imbalance on that platform and, and devised a code of conduct then that could be enforced separately. And as it turns out, even though they, they created the grocery code adjudicators separate from the CMA, they put them in the same building. You know, so the grocery code adjudicator and the competition appeal tribunal are on the second floor of the CMA building. You know, but we have no sort of contact with them. But, it, but it's just one of those things where you can actually do this. You know? And I have noticed that even though some people might say, may say that the grocery players are, are, uh, are bigger and bigger and you know, a toothless watchdog could never handle that sort of platform power. Nevertheless, I've, I've been told at least that the, the very existence of that adjudicator has actually chilled some arguably anti-competitive conduct, and it has not chilled innovative conduct. You know, it has is, it is made some of the grocery players who are doing some pretty, you know, pretty uh, hard tactics uh, with respect to their upstream suppliers, um, you know, accord a little bit more fairness. So I'm not arguing for an importation of a fairness standard, but I'm just saying that was an extra uh, lever that we could try to use because clearly antitrust wasn't going to help in that area. Any complaints from these suppliers that went to the CMA would largely be ignored because we would say under consumer welfare standard we see no harm as we understand it. Like that. So if you, if you introduce something like this, you would have to have a separate model and we just left it open for government consultation. <laughs> it, uh, before taking a, a question from, from the floor, I, th I think Thomas wanted to, to respond. Um, but it's, it, I, I don't know how DG Comp would, would like the idea of having a, a sort of sector regulation outside it, um, dealing with competition issues, but we'll, um, all of this could be worked out. But you have a, had a quick question. Thank you very much. My name is Wolfgang Papa. I'm associated with SEPs formerly in the Commission. Uh, I was surprised to hear from Mr. Keseberg that there is a definition of the market of 1997 he refers to. Is that true for other jurisdictions as well, or are we updating a little bit in, in view of network effect and other things which have happened over the last 20 years? Thank you. I hope I got it right, but if I remember correctly, the notice on the defin definition of the relevant market is really from 1997, um, and it's pretty it's pretty classic. Uh, it's still pretty good, but um, there are uh, the U.S. has done uh, a revision on that. So, uh, because of new methodologies, new tools, um, there is now obviously the debate. Uh, uh, on uh, how to uh, on the time horizon, um, uh, the, the the framework, the poten potential competition that uh, was already mentioned. So uh, there would be a chance to uh, have a revision of uh, the guidelines of the notice without going into uh, the substance of the SIEC test uh, under the merger regulation. That's a good good moment to turn, turn to Thomas. Uh, we've run out of time, so I'll let Thomas have the, the last word. It's probably appropriate. Um, uh, and, and then we will, we will end. Thomas. 
probably on, on this point very briefly. I mean, uh, that the notice on market definition is that it's from 1997 uh, doesn't mean that we are not constantly updating uh, how we assess uh, markets. I mean, if you look at the recent decisions into the Google cases, there was a lot of thinking going in uh, of how to deal with digital markets and, whether, and how the market looks like. I mean, the non-price issue, for instance, wasn't very uh, on, on top of the agenda in, uh, in 1997. Uh, obviously, now it is. How do you deal with non-price markets? The Germans had to change their law for that. Uh, we didn't have to change our law. We just adapted uh, the assessment to, to factor in the non-price market. So I think the tools are flexible enough to deal with that. So that's not a real, uh, a real issue. Actually, I wanted to ask a question to Philip, but now that we're running out of time, I'll just put it out there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I read the report, uh, quite, uh, it was quite interesting. But, and there seemed to be some uh, idea of self or co-regulation, and I just wondered how this is going to work in a market where there's a lot of fierce competition and, uh, and the players are not very keen to be regulated at all. How are you going to get the cooperation of these market players for co- or self-regulation? That's just something that uh, struck me in the report. But we can leave that open. I, I can just do a quick answer to that if you want. I mean, of course, we would, we would welcome the big players to be part of the co-regulatory, participative sandbox, co-regulation model, etc. Um, regardless, you know, leave it to say, it would be a government-run uh, situation such that, you know, whether they're in the debate or not, they, you know, they're going to get designated um, as, as having significant, <laughs> significant margin status. So maybe, uh, another allusion to my crazy islands, maybe better to be in the tent and helping devise the code than, than just waiting to see what comes out. Well, th thank you very much indeed. I, I'm sorry that we've run out of time, because I know there were some questions, and obviously we've only begun to scratch the surface. Um, I was actually wondering whether you meant competition between agencies, um, because there is some of that, but we have heard, you know, there is uh, approaches to, let's say, superdominance, um, which is a rather intriguing notion, but also uh, questions relating to, to growth, where dominance may be acquired slowly. Um, over time. So, uh, very different uh, ideas. A lot of food for thought. I wanted to thank the panel very much for your uh, you. very interesting and thoughtful interventions. This is certainly not the last discussion. Many thanks indeed. Um, and if you would uh, express your thanks in the usual fashion, we'll move on.